Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. Coming up on today's episode... Time team, just let you see the process of people trying to find out about something they cared about. We speak to Carenza Lewis about the long-awaited return of Time Team. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by The Past, a brand new website that brings together the most exciting stories and the very best writing from the realms of archaeology, history, heritage, and the ancient world. You can subscribe to The Past today for just $7.99 a month by visiting our website at the-past.com forward slash subscribe. But until the end of April, listeners to this podcast can subscribe for a whole year for half price. That's just $39.99 a year. Just subscribe for the year and enter the voucher code PODAPRIL. That's PODAPRIL, one word, all in capital letters. Now, ever since it first aired in 1994, Time Team has been credited for bringing the field of archaeology to a mass audience. While the original show came to an end eight years ago, it has proved continuously popular, both via repeats on television and online at the show's dedicated YouTube channel. Later this summer, the show was set to make a long-awaited comeback. Two major digs have been confirmed in the south of England, the exploration of which will be shown on YouTube before the end of the year. The return has been made possible by the determination of the show's creator and producer, Tim Taylor, and by thousands of fans who have supported its comeback on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Carenza Lewis was one of the show's most recognisable faces. As a professional archaeologist, she appeared in every season of Time Team, from the 1st through to the 12th. Ahead of the show's return later this year, we got a chance to ask Carenza about her memories of the original show and what we can look forward to in the upcoming episodes. Current archaeology editor Carly Hiltz joined me for the interview and she started things off for us. Hi Carenza, how are you today? I'm not too bad at all, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. So uh, we're having a chat today because in the latest issue of Current Archaeology, we've got a piece about Time Team. And obviously Time Team is exactly is coming back this year, which is great news. Uh, so obviously Time Team, the original Time Team, ran for nearly 20 years and it's still incredibly popular. Uh, repeats are shown all the time. It's, it's available online. And uh, as we say in our article, it really changed what people thought about archaeology. So I was hoping to ask you today why you thought it was such a successful programme. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because to think about the answer in a way, you have to go back a really long way because it started quarter of a century ago, which is terrifying really when you think about it. Um, and, you know, television was very different then. You know, archaeological programmes tended to be very much experts talking uh, from amazing sites about amazing stuff that had been found and discovered and, and, and understood and so on. Um and Time Team just completely broke the mould on that. So it and it, it is difficult to remember that it was the first programme ever where you had that sort of thing of seeing the archaeological process in action, uh, sort of, you know, minute by minute, as it were. Um, and, you know, OK, the Silver Hill excavations in the 1960s had done a bit of that, but not on that same sort of this is how it's unfolding hour after hour sort of way. And that had been, again, quarter of a century before that. Um, time team just let you see the process of people trying to find out about something they cared about. 
And so I think partly it was that different view it gave people. There was the absolute honesty that at the beginning of the dig, we didn't know what was going to turn up. So Tony's opening piece, the camera, um, you know, I, I can only ever, ever remember one time we ever had to go back and reshoot it. Otherwise, it was just left. And Tony was saying, we're looking for the remains of a Roman villa. And it turned out to be a Iron Age settlement. Then the viewer got to see that process of the fact that things, you know, things are unknown. So I think it was a privileged access. It gave people a privileged view. Um, I think it also gave, gave people a sense of being part of it, of belonging to it in a way. It was very um, human. Um, I think, you know, if we were frustrated or disappointed or excited or intrigued, um, the viewer got to share in those emotions. And I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think initially most of the viewers were probably people already interested in archaeology, but it picked up a huge following. Um, and I think because people started to care about what was being discovered, you know, a couple of scrubby little bits of Anglo-Saxon pottery and nobody's, you know, grab it first item at the sale. But, you know, they tell you a huge amount. And once you understand the value of that, then you care about it. Then you want to know what's going to happen. And I think Time Team was really good at, at getting people involved in the story, the sort of human side of it. And I think another thing that made it popular actually was the humour. Um, it didn't take itself 100% seriously. The archaeology was always done absolutely 150% perfectly, uh, in as much as archaeology ever can be, but we were always working to the highest standards. Um, but there was opportunities for a bit of human, a bit of humour, a bit of humanity, um, a bit of joking. Um, and again, I think that just drew people in as well because it didn't feel like a, you know, kind of, it didn't feel didactic. It didn't feel like it was trying to teach you something, although it came out of Channel 4's education budget. Um, it, it felt like it was allowing you to explore something. I think, and and learn something. And the viewer came out of it uh, feeling they'd been on a journey, feeling they'd been there at the point when something was discovered, and feeling that they knew something. You know, we introduced the term geophys to the to the language. Really, you know, it used to be the case you turned up at a you know site to do some field work or do some surveying or something, and people would ask you what on earth you were doing there. You know, and now they sort of say, oh, well, uh, you know, you'll be wanting to do a dig then. Are you going to bring geophys in? You know, and that's just ordinary people in the street, not archaeologists replying like that. So, you know, I think it's, 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 it's view of the past. It's that privilege access, that fly on the wall view, the humanity and the humour, I think, that it brought to it. And you could never have predicted that, I don't think. Do you have any, any favourite memories yourself of being involved in the show? Goodness, I mean, there are so many, <laughs> not all of them broadcastable, but <laughs> uh, I think, um, oh gosh, there are so many. I think one of the sites I really, really enjoyed was Borsey um, in Norfolk, which we did, I can't remember, series five or six, I think. Um, and it was a live broadcast. And by that time in the series, we'd all got quite used to the, the standard format um, but Borsi was only the second live one we did and it was quite an unpredictable site again because it was a site that had been found through metal detecting um, and the metal detecting itself had not initially been reported properly um, so it was a bit of a contentious site 
Um, we were wanting to try and identify what the context for these metal detected finds, which had come from near a sort of ruined church in Norfolk. Um, and it was just one of those sites that kind of built up and built up and built up. Um, and we looked at the aerial photographs and there seemed to be an enclosure ditch. And we did some trenches across that. And the first few didn't produce very much. And then we found some Middle Anglo-Saxon uh, artefacts with kind of loom weight, um, which told us actually this was an early Christian enclosed settlement, like an early monastery. And that explained why some of those finds were there. Um, we were able to reconstruct the landscape and see that it would have been an island in the past. And that's why people have been attracted to it. And then as it right at the very end, we discovered um, some, uh, well, we discovered uh, some human remains from the cemetery near the church, but outside the most recent cemetery boundary. So not really where we'd expect them to be. And then almost as the you know, end of play bell went, um, we discovered below the level where most of the skeletons had been um, another skeleton with a massive head wound. And it was just such a dramatic discovery um, because this, I mean, this was a, a, a plate of the skull, the size of the palm of your hand effectively had kind of been detached uh, through a blow to the uh, sort of top of the head. Um, and we thought initially a very, really heavily built skeleton, heavily, heavily built skull, really heavy brow ridges, sort of thing that every time Tim Pure by then knew was a good sign of a male skeleton. And that's what our osteologist said. Um, and it looked like a battle wound. So we're thinking, is this an Anglo-Saxon settlement that's been raided by Vikings or something? But then it was a live program. We had to stop because we'd run out of time. <laughs> and then, and I think this is why it has such a strong memory, it, because it was a site that kept on giving. Uh, because when we got the uh, the remains back to the laboratory and did the analysis, uh, the DNA turned out to be female, which was a really bizarre discovery because it looked such a male thing. Not only was it heavy, but it looked like a, a battle injury. Um, and then we did more analysis and worked out that the uh, injury hadn't actually caused the death or not immediately, that the reason the plate of bone was separate was because it had been surgically removed. So the person must have survived that injury. Someone had carried out an operation to try and save their life. Um, probably why they'd ended up in this monastic cemetery, because those were the people with the skills. We didn't know if she was a nun or someone local who'd been brought out for that help. And then we saw there was a um, puncture wounds on the pelvis from what looked like a dog bite initially. But then we matched it and it turned out to match with a badger vest. So that suggested that she'd actually been um, sort of scavenged, as it were, by a, a badger while she was unconscious, presumably because a badger wouldn't have done that, she'd been conscious, um, suggesting she'd been in woodland, perhaps like that were probably attacked outside the monastery, left for dead, and then recovered while she was still alive and someone attempted to save, save her life, which was ultimately unsuccessful. So it was just an amazing example of... In any archaeological discovery, there can be so much more than what you initially find. And it was both the, um, you know, that would never have been discovered if it hadn't been for the time team excavation. Um, but of course, because of the time team format, that didn't all get in the first program at all. And there was this awful, how do we squeeze this into the edit, you know, the, the, the voiceover where we're editing the final program? How much of all this new stuff can we possibly put in? And we actually went back and did another follow up program. 
So I think that's one standout memory for me. But there are so many. I mean, the very first one was hilarious because none of us knew what we were doing. And it took about <laughs> four hours to do the opening piece to camera, mainly because Mick had bought two or three bottles of wine for lunch, where we used to start after lunch on Fridays on the, the first series. Um, and Mick had bought some wine to sort of relax us all, which, which it certainly did, but it didn't do for none of us had really got, you know, were, uh, familiar with the idea that, you know, you need to say something and then stick to it rather than constantly adapting what you're going to say based on the first take. You know, <laughs> so no one can keep a straight face. And, um, you know, there are a lot of good memories. I'm sure. It sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> So um, it's been eight years since Time Team went off air, uh, but now it's it's coming back. So um, why 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 now? Why is the show coming back? Well, with the benefit of the fact that it is now coming back, there's almost the feeling that a lot of people never really were prepared to leave it. Had actually believe it had actually gone. I think. Um, I mean, I left the series, you know, much longer ago. Um, and, you know, even so, and it's been 15 years since I was on the series, um, and yet I still get recognised all the time, um, you know, just in the street. Um, and I still get uh, emails or uh, messages on social media these days. Um, and so often people are saying, Time Team was fantastic. It completely changed my life. It helped me through a really difficult time. I get messages like that a lot, uh, particularly over the last year or so during lockdown. People have said they've been kind of binge watching. Um, you know, somebody said, I've watched all of the Time Teams three times over. Should I start them a fourth time? You know, this was a message on social media just that on Twitter just a few days ago. Um, so I think people have, have always loved it. They've kept watching it. Uh, it has been uh, available to sort of catch up on and not always, um, you know, you know, you, you can usually find a copy of the programme, though it, some of them did look pretty much like somebody had recorded them, you know, on their camera from their TV. But nonetheless, you could watch them. You could get the sense of it. Now many more of them are available to watch in good quality. Um People loved it. People have always wanted to come back. People have, the constant question has been, could it come back? When's it coming back? Will it ever come back? Can't you make it come back? You know. Um, and then about 18 months ago, on um, yeah, July 2019, um, I was at a conference with um, Helen, Stuart and John, uh, from obviously all from Time Team as well, at the British Museum for the Council for British Archaeology. We were talking about various aspects of Time Team and kind of what we've done since. Um, and Tim Taylor was there, the producer, um, and he, I think, had been sort of trying to work out how you could bring Time Team back. Um, and that really was the, you know, from, from my perspective, that was the point at which it all started really, because if it was going to happen, because we were all in touch again, and we then all met up in Sheffield and started to really try to, you know, bottom out, could this happen? Could this actually be done? Um you know, that obviously there's lots of changes will need to, need to be made. Um, but that was the point at which it, it, I think it really started to come back. But I think there's been that feeling. It, it's not been dead. It's just been sleeping in an <laughs> odd sort of way. Absolutely. And um, supporters are able to help the show come back through Patreon. Is that right? That's right. That's the way it has come back this time. It's not through uh, battles with Channel 4 to try and get it, um, uh, or another channel trying to get it commissioned. It's through Patreon, which is allows members of the public 
to um, subscribe to support uh, time team coming back and it can be from you know a fiver up to higher amounts as regular payments um, so even more than people were in the original series people feel they really are contributing to making it happen um, and you know the the, the more the, the more subscribers we can get the more programs we can make um, and the more analysis we can do as well so you know those things like extra radiocarbon dates or that osteological analysis that will reveal a story like that skeleton from Borsi, you know, obviously all of these things cost money. Um, and, you know, we can we can do more and more if we get more subscribers. So it's very much in the hands of, of the viewers, really. Yeah, thank you, Carly. Um, I was just wondering, Carenza, if you can tell us a bit more about the, the actual digs that you'll be doing this time. And um, if so, how the pandemic has affected things, if at all it will affect the digs once you're up and running. Well, <laughs> two big questions. Um, the first one, the sites we'll be doing, yeah, we've identified the first two sites. We've got enough Patreon subscribers to um, uh, fund two digs this year at the moment. Um, uh, one's at on the Broughton Estate in Oxfordshire, and that's going to be a Roman villa. Um, always a big favourite of Time Team producers, and I think viewers as, as well. Um, uh, they're very, uh, their sites can have lots of finds. Um, there's lots of stories one can tell about them. Uh, you get a good view into people's lives and the sort of stuff they have because you get a lot of finds. Uh, you get an idea of the opulence or indeed in some cases the everyday nature of these sites. But you also get sort of, uh, you know, you can find out something about their origins and why they're sited, why they are, where they are, you know, are they just enjoying the view or is it strategically near a town or something? And something about why they ended, you know, and that, that sort of picks up stories about the end of Roman Britain and what happened, what was that like to live through and, and you know, that kind of turmoil. Um, so that I think will be a really interesting site. There's been some excavations done already, so we've got something that we can sort of pick up off. There's clearly a lot of archaeology surviving there. Um, it's a great site for landscape survey as well. Um, there's local communities nearby, which I'm hoping to be able to sort of work with myself. Um, and um, we'll be doing as much as we can over the old familiar three days. <laughs> with the new format, I think, uh, you know, we probably be able to do it a little bit differently. Uh, the other site is Fogu in uh, Cornwall. Um, we had a sort of a uh, dozen or so sites that were on a shortlist. And I think the reason we all quite fancied Fogu was we all kind of fancied a trip to Cornwall, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, lovely part of the country and, uh, you know, beautiful area, beautiful landscape, beautiful archaeology, um, and, uh, you know, not somewhere you get to visit all the time as well, especially not from my perspective, living in Lincoln, which is right on the other side of the country. Um, and the Fogu site, um, again, they're, you know, they're a bit mysterious. They're these underground sort of, some people say they're just cellars, which doesn't sound very romantic or very appealing. But, you know, other people suggest that there's some sort of ritual structure. Um, they come out of the tradition in, in some respects of sort of stone structures in the prehistoric, um, some of which are ritual, some of which are functional. Um, and again, there's that sort of thing. What can we find out about it? What's going to be that? It's probably a little bit riskier because we know there'll be lots of remains on the Rome Villa at Broughton, um, but we don't really know as much about the Fogu site. Um, and you asked about the impact of the um, pandemic. I think normally we'd have gone down and visited these sites um, yeah. at this 
point, um, you know, we're only three months or so from the planned time when we're going to be starting the first one. Um, we'd probably have gone down and, and had a look. In fact, I think if it hadn't been the pandemic, I suspect we'd all have, you know, gone down, had a night there and, and had a bit of time catching up and a bit of time sort of just, you know, gossiping and sharing stories and so on and reminiscing um, and, and had a good recce. We haven't been able to do anything like that. Um, that said, I think the pandemic has, you know, a lot more people, especially with the last lockdowns um, between Christmas and Easter, um, you know, people have been at home more. So it's, you know, people have had more of an opportunity to catch up on what's going on through social media. Um, and these days, of course, you've got Google Earth and so on. People can go and have a look at the aerial photography of the site for themselves from their own, you know, living room. Anyhow, that's the first two. Um, we've got lots of others planned. And of course, I'm getting deluged with, you know, Twitter messages now saying, oh, I've got a site at such and such. Can't you come and do that? Wonderful. And ironically, when we first started Time Team, we used to have this sort of person reading out the Time Team letter, you know, dear Time Team. Of course, in the first series, these were all, you know, they were retrofitted, I think is the polite way of putting that, because in the new series, no one would have been writing into it. So we had to get the owners to sort of write these letters. And then as the series went on, we used to get letters coming in all the time saying, dear time team, please come and dig my such and such. Now, of course, with social media, it's so much easier to send a message like that. I think we've touched a little bit on this already about the sort of technological changes that have occurred since Time Team last aired, both in terms of the archaeology and, and media as well. Do you think you could tell us a bit more about this and what you think will be different this time? Well, technology is going to make a huge number of things easier and cheaper. Um, so uh, previously in Time Team, the uh, you know, Mick going up in the helicopter was always a big part of it. Um, and, um, you know, that was very expensive. Um, and, you know, now we can do all that sort of thing with a drone. So, <laughs> um, you know, and we can have a drone going up and down whenever we want as well. So that's going to, you know, free up budget for other other things like more of the archaeology. Um, in fact, there's a lot of new technology in the air that transforms the way we can understand the past. So uh, techniques like LIDAR give us another way of getting a contour survey, which is much quicker than doing, doing it on the ground. Um, sort of thermal imaging, you can now do that from the air. That gives you another sort of set of data that can help you interpret what's underground, where it is that you can then uh, use to match up with a geophysical survey, even target the geophysical survey. Uh, the uh, you know techniques used in geophysical survey themselves, actual ground level geophysical survey, have advanced hugely, and we're all really looking forward to uh, John showing off what um, that can do now. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and the two sites, the Roman Villa and the Fogu site, will be offered quite complementary and different challenges for that kind of below ground prospection that'll help us target where we're going to be digging. And then we've got techniques for dating and that sort of thing that's optically stimulated, um, luminescence, which can date, you know, soils, the data feature was last exposed to the air. You know, I mean, that's going to be amazing if we can use that because, you know, we don't have to be able to find pottery and so on. And then because we will have a format this time around that will be kind of on YouTube, um, it will be, uh, it can be released bit by bit. We can go on doing the analysis after the three days and we can bring people up to date with that analysis. And we may even be able to enable Patreon subscribers to get sort of a special extra information through that. Um, you know, if we're doing something like OSL dating, we get a carbon date back, 
uh, or we've got a, a, an analytical technique that's telling us what the piece of pottery was used for, um, you know, we can update, we can add that in. So it's going to be like a big jigsaw puzzle that the new technology is going to be enabling us both to get the bigger picture, but also put lots more of the little pieces of that jigsaw into place so that people can see the picture more clearly. And if one radiocarbon day brings one little extra bit of the jigsaw into place, you know, that's that part of the picture made a bit clearer. Um, and then, of course, there's things like social media. Uh, last time I was involved with Time Team, social media was in its utter infancy, It really, um, you know, and it just wasn't really a thing at all. I mean, I, I, yeah, I got my first mobile phone on Time Team, and that was only because I'd driven all the way to Bristol to do a shoot that was uh, delayed because the cave was flooded and they hadn't been able to get hold of it because I didn't have a mobile phone, you know. I mean, how prehistoric does that sound? Um <laughs> Social media now, I think we'll be able to, you know, be expecting to be you know, tweeting about what's going on as it's happening. We'll be able to keep people in touch with it. Um, and I think the other thing is community archaeology has really um, had a resurgence in the last sort of 15, 20 years. Um, and I'm hoping we'll be able to connect local communities much more effectively and much more thoroughly with the sites we're digging and, and leave more of legacy as well with the places that we're actually visiting uh, and again, that's something that's a lot more work's been done on at the moment. Well, I mean, I can obviously tell you're looking forward to get getting going again. Um, it might be a quite a difficult question, but you think you can pinpoint one thing in particular that you're looking forward to the most? Well, if I'm absolutely honest, I think probably sitting here now looking forward to it, and obviously we're all just starting to come out of lockdown at the moment, um, I think it's... It's going to be meeting up with people again and reminiscing yeah. and just catching up with people and working with everyone again um, with the sort of benefit of the huge amount of experience we've all got and the fact that it's just wonderful to have it coming back. And we kind of feel like the underdogs again, you know, we're like the new startup and, and Time Team started up being the underdog and the startup and the thing that no one really thought was going to work and took seriously um, and then hugely built up. And bizarrely, we're now back in that position. Um, so I think it'll be, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it works, how it builds up um, with no particular expectations. We didn't have many expectations first time round. Um, we have no idea how it's going to go. But to be quite honest, I think just catching up with everyone again will just be really, really nice. Yeah, I think that's definitely well said. It's something we can all um, agree on at the moment. Um, one final question. I, I don't want to th think that everything in life is about time team. So I was just going to ask you what else you've been up to in the, the years since it's been off air. Well, as I said, it's been 15 years since I've been involved with mm. Time Team. Um, and, yeah, no, I've, I was at the University of Cambridge, um, uh, but went there immediately after Time Team and um, was uh, teaching medieval archaeology there, but actually set up an outreach unit doing community archaeology and, in fact, brought some of the experience from Time Team to do that. So, you know, I was running you know, set up projects where we had 40, 14-year-olds coming on site to do test pit mm. digging. And, you know, because I'd seen big projects organised um, uh, on Time Team. I kind of knew how to do that because I'd seen it done. I was channeling my inner Tsarina, which is not uh, imperialistic aspirations, but our project manager was called Tsarina. And I'd seen really? how Gosh. getting all those things, like having a base, getting a team, making sure people are booked, sorting out transport arrangements, make, you know, all those sort of things. I'd seen how it could be done. And that really built up. I spent about 10 years doing that. We had about 10,000 or so people involved in various projects over that time. 
then moved to the University of Lincoln about five years ago and have been looking, doing sort of research into the kind of impact that that sort of participation has um, both on school kids, but also on members of the public. I'm really interested in the impact on well-being of people who take part in archaeology. That's what I'm working on at the moment. And I've got a project also in Europe, introducing community archaeology into Europe, looking at the well-being aspect of that. And what that's also doing is helping me do research into medieval settlements, which has always been my main area of research, has been historic settlement. The Cambridge projects were nearly all about rural settlements. We've done uh, two and a half thousand test pits in 75 different villages, um, reconstructing the development of the places we all live in today um, from the Roman period right through the Anglo-Saxon into the medieval and more recently. And uh, now I need a bit of time to write all that up properly. Um, so, yeah, I've been busy. <laughs> been busy. Thank you, Karenta. Thanks very much for joining us today. Really good to talk to you. Thank you very much. It's been great. Uh, Carly, you used to work on Time Team yourself as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you were involved and any fond memories that you have? Sure. So I was a researcher on Series 18, and that kind of had two main elements to the role. Uh, during the research and development phase, I, I helped to identify potential sites that we could we could excavate. And, you know, you looked into the permissions and whether it was scheduled in the landowner and you know, what's been done on it before. Uh, and once we pinned those down, then there was a lot of visiting uh, museums and local record offices and archives, basically to dig out all those wonderful documents and photos and maps that you see on the screen. The researcher had to go and find those and clear the permissions for them, which was Lots and lots of fun. Uh, Carenza mentioned the, the site recce too. We'd go along with the director and look at the site and you know, work out what would be a good strategy for investigating it. Um, and then at the end of that phase, I had to put together my research folder, which uh, basically every every two weeks, oh, it was quite a challenge. Every two weeks, you basically had to try and become as much of an expert in whatever relevant period you were investigating uh, as much as you could as possible, because every two weeks it was a different site we were filming. And so you put together this really detailed folder with all the historical information, because during filming, um, I had to be on location too. And I was there with my folder to sort of help answer any questions that the director might have while the filming is taking place, which was fun, but you know, as I said, challenging. He was like, oh no, testing me on my special subject every 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 two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good fun. It's really fun. Uh, and during filming, as I said, uh, main role was to be there with my folder, helping out with the historical background. But I also did something called Trench Watch, uh, which was that as often as I could, whenever I had a spare moment, I would get my little notebook and I went round all the trenches you know, that didn't have a camera on them at that point. And I would talk to Phil and Raksha and Matt and Faye and all the team uh, basically talking to them about what they were doing and what they'd found at that point to note it all down. And the main reason for that was for continuity during the edit so that people you know, people knew what order things had happened in. But it yeah. was so much fun because it meant I got to see the dig happening you know, in real time. I wasn't just sat there waiting to be summoned with my folder. I got to go and see it happening and talk to everyone, which was really, really lovely. Yeah, that does sound fun. You were sort of like a viewer, but up close watching it. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I imagine a lot of... Um... Preparation went into that show as well. <laughs> Background preparation. <laughs> a lot of work behind the scenes. Yeah. We had a lot of fun as the research team. But but it was good fun. And I will say the the people you see on screen, they're not putting on characters. This was exactly no. how people were. They were the same in the pub, they were the same on on location. And it was a really close fit team. It was a lovely place to work. Okay. And obviously now that the show's coming back, I'm just gonna assume that you'll be tuning in. I was wondering oh, if there's one thing in particular that you're looking forward to. I'm just looking forward to seeing that 
that wonderful spirit on the screen again. Um, you know, Karenza said how how everyone joked together and had fun. And from what I saw when I worked there, yeah, it had this wonderful inventiveness and can-do spirit. And it really did feel like a bit of an adventure. And I'm looking forward to seeing that on the screen. I, I can't wait to see the new episodes. Yeah, no, that's certainly true. Um, well, obviously, we've got the article on Time Team's return in the uh, latest issue of Current Archaeology. Um, I was just wanting to ask you as the editor, what else we can look forward to in this issue? Ah, uh, we have got two features exploring really interesting ways in which prehistoric people uh, dealt with their dead. Um, one of these is looking at the Sculptor's Cave, which is a really remote sea cave in, in northeast Scotland. And there it was excavated about a century ago and again in 1979. Uh, but the, the publication record's a bit patchy. Uh, until recently, there's been a big project drawing all that together and with some new field work too. And the findings as, a, as they present them are fascinating. There's about 1,500 years of human activity in this really hard to get to spot. And the people there in the Late Bronze Age and the Iron Age were doing such interesting things. There's some really interesting funerary, funerary rituals, which uh, you'll be able to read all about. It's very, very interesting. Uh, and similarly, second prehistoric piece, um, remaining in the Late Bronze Age and the Iron Age, we're looking at bog bodies and we're talking about why people at this time were, were putting putting bodies into wetlands and into bogs, what might be the motivations behind them. And uh, because these remains tend to be so well preserved, we're looking at what archaeological science can tell us about these people, about their lives and their deaths. Uh, as well as that, we've got a, a piece looking at two medieval castles on the Welsh border. Uh, they're built really unusually close together. So we're looking at a, a community project investiga investigating who built them and why they're why they're quite so close. It's very interesting. And finally, uh, we have got a piece reporting on, we've been on a site visit uh, with, with the uh, <laughs> restrictions lifting and the stay-at-home order going and outdoor sites reopening. We've been on a site visit. I've been to Butts Ancient Farm, which is an experimental archaeology centre in Hampshire. It's a really cool site. Uh, they've recently reopened. They have lots of reconstructed historic buildings and they've just launched a new Neolithic one, Neolithic house, based on some remains excavated by Wessex Archaeology I think about eight years ago in Berkshire and it looks really really nice so we've got an article uh, exploring the house how it was made and also talking about this new online platform uh, called Butsa Plus which Butsa Ancient Farm have launched and it's it helps to share their research on a, a global scale and it's also helping them to raise funds because they were like many sites forced to close during the pandemic um, so they've got this new subscriber based platform to help raise some funds and get their work out there again which is really interesting. Thanks, Carly. And don't forget, you can read the article on the Return of Time team, that's by Felix Rowe, in the latest issue of Current Archaeology, which is out on the 6th of May. And you can also read it online at the PAST website. And we've also got plenty of extra content on Time Team to keep you going until the show returns. Head to the PAST website to see for yourself. That's all for this week. Don't forget our exclusive discount offer for listeners such as yourself. You have just a couple of days left to subscribe to the past for a whole year for just $39.99. That's half the normal price. In order to take advantage of this offer, just use the code PODAPRIL, that's one word, all in capital letters, when you're signing up on our subscriptions page. Carly and I would like to thank our guest Carenza Lewis for joining us, and to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to us and sharing it around. The Pastcast is available every Wednesday morning on Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, and from wherever else that you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again soon.